0: Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. I am your host Scott Chaloner and I'm delighted to be joined on the programme today by Andreas Lazarou. Andreas is the Managing Director of the hairdressing business Lazarou Hair Salons. Um, Andreas, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for joining us on the programme today. Oh, Thank you for having me. Cheers. It's a real pleasure having you with us. Now, um, the whole reason we're here, of course, is to discuss leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering that today's generation of business leaders is going through one of the greatest challenges of our time, I think it's fair to say, in the shape of COVID-19, no less, I feel it would be remiss of me not to ask you just to what extent the pandemic has affected you and your business, especially in the services industry.
1: Mm, Well, obviously... um... The unfortunate thing we've had is um we haven't really been able to bring any revenue in through um through the lockdown period, and I think this is what's been um the most challenging thing for us. um obviously, luckily, the uh, government brought up the furlough scheme and obviously various support like that. but the kind of challenge was um one thing we did um, think okay, could we innovate with was um like um e commerce, which is obviously retail. But um, we did find um, that we kind of worked out the numbers and crunched the numbers and the viability of it would have been kind of like pointless. So we, we were kind of challenged by complete lockdown from like March the 21st. Uh, obviously in Wales, we were slightly delayed on England and we didn't get back in until July the 13th with zero revenue. So uh, we were kind of in hibernation. Um, but I think What we tried to focus on during the lockdown, which was kind of good, was um, clean up all the mess. We couldn't kind of clean up when we were operating, like change operating systems, um, become cashless or almost cashless nearly, uh, integrate. Um, We did used to take deposits in our business where we would have to take um, £30 deposits to obviously reduce no-shows, which kind of helped there. Then we implemented a system now which kind of just take their car details them not have to pay a forward advance booking of a deposit and we could kind of just extract um their money on the day of the booking um so that was kind of a good system we implemented and then we kind of focused them um, with our teams on things like um zoom um because i i think with hairdressing because we're in a service service industry we're kind of always thinking unless kind of you're there you can't really do anything and this kind of where um I'd say the leadership side come out using things like Zoom with our teams um, to keep them inspired or to keep them even sane, really, through lockdown because um, emotionally for some people it was, um, it was volatile. Um, I think, obviously, um, for myself, uh, it's been a challenging time and difficult because, obviously, uh, it's been a lot of uncertainty. Um, on finances and obviously um, teams and how how it's going to be when we open. And obviously, we're on the high street, so um, how's the high street going to be when we go back? Um, and obviously, we are—you know—it's kind of all unfolding now.
0: And would you so say, that, mm, yeah. of course, yes? And no, would you say that this experience of crisis management, if we call it that, has taught yeah. you anything in a business leadership yeah. capacity? Definitely,
1: yeah. Kind of, um, I think. I think from lockdown, I think I'm probably more engaging with our people, um like using a lot more technology, things like zoom um you know trying to maximize and be run as efficiently as possible and kind of share the message and the vision through technology opposed to kind of being in the salon, I suppose especially now with so much social distancing going on and kind of group meetings, you know we're kind of challenged by all these things now where we're kind of um you know, we have a distance issue really, um, obviously. So I think we're, we're, we're so lucky we have technology during this crisis so we can kind of adapt in, um, you know, still kind of connect with our people and kind of keep them motivated and driven through this time. Um, so yeah, taught me to use more technology.
0: (laughs) And considering that we have heightened our use of technology during this time and really innovated during this period out of necessity in business, do you think that some features of the lockdown period, particularly on that side of things, could become a permanent fixture in the way that we do business in the UK?
1: Definitely. I think definitely, you know, there's going to be so much innovation, obviously, from the lockdown and obviously, it's giving people time to think um and improve you know like their industries as such like we're doing things now probably that we wouldn't have done for years to come hadn't the lockdown happened. so I am kind of grateful for the lockdown in ways um and now we're kind of implementing and operating with these things. I feel that um the business is more efficient and a lot more smoother, so yeah, um a lot of the things we're doing now I think they'll be with a foreseeable future.
0: Now, shifting focus ever so slightly just to address leadership a little bit more broadly now, Andreas, I always like to ask the question to guests that come onto the program. What do you feel the role of a leader is? When I say that word leader, what does it actually mean to you?
1: Okay. Well, um, I'm personally a firm believer of obviously everything rises and falls on leadership. But for, but for me, it's kind of the guy or the person who sets the example in his in just Quite raw discipline kind of you know we all we all find it difficult to kind of stay disciplined and you know for me what a great leader is is that person who's kind of doing it when it rains when it's sunny and they're just following you know following the plan every time and um you know that's something I always look for great you know um great leaders um who can kind of like march on through these times and attack these times and you know, find the best out of these times. You know, uh, like, like the positives rather than the negatives. And I think, like, um, for me, is personally the person who who, who sets the example and kind of follows the systems and uh, and the um in leads lead, leads the pack, kind of like a pack of wolves or whatever you want to call it. But uh, um, yeah.
0: I suppose as well, it's become really apparent during this time that leaders have had to step up and inspire those around them as well as provide reassurance and direction during this particular time. However, when you are the one at the top of the business, and you do need a little bit of inspiration for yourself, and there is nobody above you to refer to, unlike is the case with employees, for example, it can feel like a little bit of a lonely place, can't it being at the top? So when you do need that inspiration for yourself, where is it that you tend to look to for that?
1: Um, well, we've got a couple of mentors we work with. Um, so we've actually got some good guidance, obviously a text away. Um, obviously, personally, myself, apart from uh, paid mentorship, which we do, um, I just like to watch a lot of YouTube, um, watch like a lot of people like John Maxwell, who obviously talks about leadership a lot, um, and just kind of find... The greats of life um, who've done it, and kind of just just immerse in them and just watch their content all the time. So um, I'm quite a big fan of YouTube for that, for mm. getting a lot of inspiration and and kickstart myself all the time.
0: And you've, of course, got a demonstrated history now in the hairdressing and beauty industry, having been in those sectors for quite some time. But what yeah. was the point in your life or career where you sort of made, where you realised, what was that penny-dropping moment where you knew that going into business was going to be the way forward for you? Well,
1: like I said, I've always been quite entrepreneurial as a kid, whether it's kind of doing a cook shop or, you know, like buying, selling stuff or whatever. but. um I'm quite fortunate that i've uh, come from a generation of hairdressers we're fifty four years in the trade so kind of' has fallen i've fallen into it more so than um uh like um uh, looking to become a hairdresser but I kind of focus um more on the business than in the business um i do i am actually a hairdresser myself but obviously i don't really that often do hair um but yeah. Um, I, can't, I, can't, I can't really put up uh, on what it was. I, mm. I think it was more so just um, get out of school quick. I just don't think the education side or the academic way of uh, learning for me worked. And I'm kind of more of a visual learner. I think hairdressing did suit me in that way that uh, I was quite lucky that it's a, a visual job.
0: And for those young people out there who may well be aspiring to make it in business themselves one day, based upon your experience, what message of advice would you have to give to them?
1: Well, a couple of rules. Stay disciplined. Stay persistent and work hard. That's it.
0: I think that's. Keep growing. Mm, I think that's very, very simple, but also very sound advice indeed. Absolutely, some mantras in life to really, really stick by, remain disciplined, keep at it, work yeah. hard. Absolutely, and it's persistence as well that's really sort of taken us through the uh, the current situation as well. I think it's yeah. fair to say on that side of things.
1: Oh yeah, we like I said, March twenty first. Um, I really noticed this lockdown really damaging and affecting the business from the beginning of March. I think, obviously, at the beginning of March, i I, I got to be honest, probably I didn't really take the um, the coronavirus that serious myself up till probably at the beginning of March. Um, I knew, obviously, we were quite aware of it in January, February, but it didn't quite hit the revenue. And then beginning of March, I just found, holy, sh- you know, holy ho- holy schmoly. um, you know, the the customers aren't coming in. Uh, by like the, the, in between the 10th and the 20th, it was literally like a ghost town. And then I kind of thought, right, okay, this isn't right. And then obviously, I took the decision to close slightly earlier than the government said because it just scheduled um It wasn't even worth being there, if that makes sense. It was probably cheaper for me to be closed. Um, and I think during that period from closing to when the government announced the assistance, that was hell. <laughs> um, and I think it was have been hell for a lot of business owners, um, you know, like obviously the uncertainty of the people who work for me. Um, I know a lot of people were making, um, you know, most of their staff redundant, but, you know, I tried to hold everything I could. Um, and then luckily the government assistance come, government assistance come, and then that was kind of our lifeline. But that period was um, like a period I don't think I, you know, I ever want to experience again.
0: Mm. There was a certain amount of um, uncertainty during uh, that time, uh, for sure, yeah. until the government support measures were announced. Yeah. And even yeah. though, of course, there is some Route forward now. It's still going to be an uncertain time over the uh, the next few yeah. months as we bid to not just rebuild the economy but also stave off the potential variable of a second wave of cases as well which could result in more localised lockdowns in future Um, but over that next 12 months just before we do wrap things up on the programme today Andreas I'm interested to understand what you feel is next for you and for your business and what you're really hoping to achieve in this next year as we get to grips with this new normal way of living and working
1: um well um, survival is the first thing. <laughs> survival in the business, anyway. Um, I'm not looking to grow in the next uh, 12 months. Um, I'm looking to sit tight, um, keep my people in jobs. Um, and I think the main focus for me at the moment is um, we've been obviously very fortunate to be um, placed on the high street. So um, getting customers was quite easy, I'd say, pre lockdown. You know, we're in the middle of the city centre. Um, We've got customers passing every day. And at the moment, that's kind of reversed because no one are in offices, students aren't here, and the city centers are almost like ghost towns. Um, So now we've kind of been challenged now to really push our marketing. It's something we've really worked on, um, especially Instagram and Facebook for hairdressing. It really helps bring revenue in. So we're kind of trying to get the salon into people's homes, if that makes sense, via their phone. So we're using that to kind of bring new leads in. So for us over the next 12 months, we're kind of just keeping the costs down, um, keeping our people in work, all of them ideally, um, and um, working on our technology. So... um, certain things can be done from home like rotors we've got a system now for rotors which is cloud based so we can all access it from the house and we can make updates and people can get notifications just simplifying um communication um so yeah the next 12 months literally is um survival is just the best word to use i think Um, Mm. and i think it's survival for everyone and how uh I really don't know what's going to happen in the next 12 months. And I think I'm literally taking week by week as it comes. You know, the ladies' business has been tremendous since we've been back. But the gents business has been um, nearly, in some some instances, um, some weeks, nearly 80% down, which is a drastic, drastic um, reduction. But the ladies' business has been outperforming itself. So at the moment, we're kind of back to square one. So it'll be quite interesting to see how the next month or two goes. In um, how the how the game plays out now, um, I'm being very vigilant at the moment in uh, watching our say day to day, week to week, in um, kind of just um, maximizing obviously things like the furlough scheme to keep keep trying to keep the business as profitable or as little or less loss making as possible. Um, but I think the interesting thing is going to be after October, um, how I, I've noticed a big. Um, um, A big influx at the moment of people applying for jobs with us. Um, I'm I'm assuming that's because they're probably uh, getting laid off more frequently as the weeks come. But I think October is going to be very interesting when the low scheme comes to an end uh, to see how businesses survive and cope after that.
0: Mm, Certainly is going to be an interesting time. And as you rightly say, it's something that really everybody can only take by the week and by the month as uh, time goes by. And just giving... The amount of variables that are there are still in this, and the uncertainty of the next year or so, I actually think it would be wonderful, Andreas to catch up at some point in this next twelve months and have you back on the program with us just to see okay. how things are getting on and hopefully there'll be some positive news to share because it has been incredibly enlightening having you join us today
1: okay, fabulous.
0: It would be I'll wonderful. It, I'd look forward to that um, as well. It's been a real pleasure having you join us today. And most importantly, until we do hopefully touch base again, please do take care and stay safe with all still going on.
2: Okay, thank you.
0: I was speaking on today's programme to Andreas Lazarou, Managing Director of Lazarou Hair Salons. Next up on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Sir Geoff Hurst, England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hat-trick hero. Um, During his professional career, Sir Geoff scored over 200 league goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City, but but remains most renowned for the fact that he is the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a World Cup competition. And that came after his treasure in England's 4-2 victory over West Germany at the old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago. That interview is coming up next. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Geoff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Geoff, good morning.
2: Uh, Good morning, how are you?
0: Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it?
2: It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. (laughs) I hope it might last. Absolutely. It's uh, it's lovely.
0: It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed and Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it, or would you prefer him to fluff his lines?
2: I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, again, that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record, and Goodness me, it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player, a uh, tremendous goalscorer. And if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved, uh, it would be someone like Harry, who's a f- fantastic professional with, with Spurs and England. So absolutely. And I want England to do well. I mean, I want England to be successful. I, I'm an England supporter. I'm a football supporter. And I just, I really want the country to do well in, in anything, in, in all sports, and particularly in my sport, so I've wanting to bury it, and I'll be absolutely, I will be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that, but more importantly, that England England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago, and it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually, mm. and that's how I felt about my. Uh, my achievement is about the team being successful, whether I got two or three, in one sense is, is uh, I wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm.
0: Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966, when you were bearing down on goal... I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that, but there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand. We all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner, England won 4 2 and lifted the World Cup, but you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you?
1: Yes. I
2: think people, um, I, I've, I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking. Um, at that moment, obviously a crucial moment in, in the game, towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually, with my back to goal, I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park, and he was waving, at the whistle in his mouth, but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the is nearly finished. I'm thinking, if the game's nearly finished, I'm having a whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the beyond the sand, into the crowd, by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, Hans-Pilkowski, the German keeper, by that time, surely the game has got to be over. But as I always jokingly say, uh, I miss it and, it and it flew in. But I was thinking about wasting time, not so much about, uh, but certainly what I was going to do, which, which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours.
0: And it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope taking a punt can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership be it in sport or in business you can't go sometimes without taking risk.
2: Absolutely, yes. It, absolutely. yes. It, I mean I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game was unfinished but that, that philosophy is right. You're just going to uh, there's an element of, 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 of risks uh, of making de- but making it's got to be a control on that risk, not, not stupid risk then, in mm-hmm. all walks of life an element of maybe doing something you're not too sure about but sometimes in life you've got to have a go. You can't uh, get be successful in terms of long-term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward.
0: And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders Council podcast and spoke with my colleague Jonathan White, uh, to Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now being replaced by the National Health Service, and we've been supporting the Health Service and applauding their efforts, and we're hanging out, thank you banners, displaying drawings of rainbows, very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966?
2: Oh, absolutely. Particularly the, the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing, and I think it was a great idea. Uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for, w- for what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, whether there's enough, enough funding for it and, and so on. But really, when you begin to realise during these turbulent times, how absolutely vital and uh, important it is, is to have a health service that works efficiently and to see individually the the amount of people who were interviewed almost every day on the terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on, and and also into what was also for me fantastic all these people from different, different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same union to to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. And very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66, and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were, remembering exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that Who's been around a long time would still say he is he's the best coach he has worked with, and that's, just, that's fifty years how has been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a at national level, a great manager, uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he as a as a a coach of a League One club uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's It's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be prepared to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick um, discipline was his big skill. Making sure those players were disciplined um, in the right formation. Uh, So the two combined, moving from one to the other. Uh, How how can you possibly be as as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just, uh, amazing. So I think Ron was, I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a, you've got a, a coach who's is, who is a team coach, who's a teacher effectively. Then you've got the other kind of character who's, who's a manager who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, the real reason of passing a coach person to our who's then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. You're managing people, uh, different characters, and, and all over the, the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot, all over different characters, strengths, players, into a unit to play for uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was was very good at that. His discipline was was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic. Uh, Leadership is important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers have, have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management. They have it. But I think um, you you can learn if you're central enough to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching you or coaching you or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach, what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after you're playing, into uh, coaching or management. So you can learn as much from people make mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think well, like that was a really stupid thing to do, and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes but it's learning. It's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, and continue making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. Mm,
0: completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, During your conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood, but I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier, even if you were to and fro between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true?
2: (laughs) So many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. When in in those uh, medieval days, you there weren't football pitches or places very rarely where you could play. You um, in our road in Greenways, it was called in Chelmsford. We that three or four lads <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It's a cul-de-sac, it's not a big long road um, with a round with a circle at the bottom. So it wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway. A because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B because there weren't as many cars. No, we didn't have as many cars in those days. So uh, we played acro- across the str- across the road, um, and used to have to learn to chip the ball above the payment to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two foot wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal, and so it was a free ball play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in. Uh, flying, you know, and making bolts wood gliders and uh, nice guy, but just didn't didn't play football. And on this particular garden, of uh, course, occasionally the ball finish up there. And crazily enough, they um, took us to court, and uh, we actually got fined. This is absolutely true. We got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. A- astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you there's nowhere else to play apart from the streets. and uh, we were actually. But that, that happens, that happens. You'll, you'll hear stories, we see stories of neighbours falling out over different things, you see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story, absolutely, absolutely true.
0: And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you?
2: Well, my father was obviously... the. the the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham, Rossdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We, have, I was born in Ashton line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably, I was the eldest of three, when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he what he did with me, I think, was uh, had a big influence, going back to that third goal in the World Cup. In many years in the back garden, and when we moved on to it, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford, and he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot. And so, I at that time, and even today, it's uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two footed, and I was maybe not as two footed as Bobby Charlton, even Jack Charlton, his brother didn't know which was his best foot. he, he was fantastic, but I was pretty, pretty, um, um. Two footed, and a lot of the hat tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he had had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child. Although I had a football, footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my my story is a friend of my father. I know the guy's name called Jock Redfern. Unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal, and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school-leading age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial with them, and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school-leading age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that uh, that's how it, how it happened. Um uh, Although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, there was no big focus on me uh, as a great school board player. Nobody was scouting me or uh, you know, writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's that's how it happened. The problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well. And I was messing about, as I, I kind of put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early, early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then, or centre-half at school. Um, he said, uh, I'm to try you up front. He put me up front in the game, and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically.
0: And I suppose as well what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it?
2: Yes, a lot of people know that. Uh, one game, uh, one game. The sort of went messing about but t- t- between the two. I had uh, one first-class game for Essex, at, as you said, Egbert in um, in Liverpool, and I think I got naught and and not out. I think something. I we won the game, funny. I, I saw a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. V. Um, Lancashire up, up in their territory, but that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say, make your mind up. When you look back, when, uh, even today, cricket goes through till, what, September, whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season, early games, for those two or three years, extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other. uh, Until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it. And from a standing start, I think my first season, Around, I think, September, October, I I played my first game up front against Liverpool. And I think I played about 23, 24 games, no, 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals, like one in two from a standing start for a Mm. a big field player. So um, quite changed dramatically. um, That was 60, 62, 63 season, the three years before the World Cup.
0: What was Gordon like as a leader on the field?
2: Well, first of all, he he was a great... uh, Two things for Gordon. He was a a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had, uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, Absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at I us. When Gordon passed away, naturally, uh, sadly, um, a few months ago, and they were showing a lot of videos of Banksy, uh, programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realize how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls, not just tipping balls. out agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very... Mild mannered, lovely, lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joke. He always had a, a, a joke for you. Every time you met, sometime, he'd have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him, and are uh, close to him and remember what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for for Banksy. And we were very lucky, very lucky, of course, to have that kind of. And you need that kind of quality um, as a, a world-class player when you win a World Cup. You need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banksy is one of the world-class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world-class player, in, but in the squad. And Ray Wilson, our left-back, I would always argue, was a world-class player. So you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup Some world-class players. And Banksy was up there, w- w- not with the best, be successful at that level to compete in their level, and discipline was one of them, and, and um, obviously Tony Wadding saw that, and if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hutton, which we did, and um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea, he lost a bit of weight, and uh, although he was a little bit undisciplined himself, hence they needed him to to stay with me what he was, was a fantastic player. He is, uh, was, he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across, the, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain, uh, slightly bit of ill-discipline within his, his general life. And you need, at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player, but I compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mold mm-hmm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about 8 o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those, uh, those few months. And I think it was a, a big help to uh, getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the
0: club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England?
2: Um, well, I think Ireland was just a still sort of with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in in America, it was the early days of. Um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at, at Seattle, so it's difficult to make a uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate hey, at West Ham, it that we, that was a great time at the Globe, and I was fortunate to play with home city uh, for three years, and it was a fantastic time for that particular club. They won, of course, the, uh, the, the League Cup before I went there. Mm. Sadly, they knocked us out in the semi final. So it was a, a marvellous time for for that particular club, and very close. We actually, I think we played Ajax in, in, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on on a goal over two, over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course. But I think, as, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my uh, sell by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, that I was. I wasn't at my best, and I thought it was time to retire, which I did. And Johnny Giles was in charge, and I think uh, West West Brom actually got up that year, but I made very little contributions to that success that club had. So um, yes, uh, the American experience was just fantastic. I never thought of long term being over there. That was a a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters, and uh, while I think she was uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there. So that was a good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a, just a, I always joke about Ireland. I was there for, for, for about I think a month, I think it was. And I uh, enjoyed the experience and I earned a few quid and I think it paid for, for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. this <laughs> new kitchen.
0: <laughs> so it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career
2: yes I think it's I think the that kind of
0: whatever the word correct word is I don't know
2: being looked at and, and revered sort of comes maybe maybe longer maybe in longer not some, sort of immediately after you finish playing but in the long term when um uh, and I always joke with people introduce me to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend, and I always jokingly say you only start being called a legend when you're over seventy. And I think the whatever the word is, I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever, it sort of happens, and you think more about it, or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not not certainly. Um, I felt during the. The time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during, during my football career. And I think I, though I went into business for 20 years, I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years, probably.
0: For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sports, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them?
2: Simple advice in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Al was a, He was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has natural characteristics. You can learn about management on mental courses but there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alf because I have it into my my business life and even my fa- uh, talk to my family life if they're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss. You move them out, and I think that's a simple one of the most simple uh, lessons I learned during the Alf Ramsey period even some of the great players, I felt should have been in the squad, possibly at the time, without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not you know, completely complying with everything and they're, they're left out or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was And even some with great ability, I, I think, probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of, of the group. So, that, that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life.
0: And ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed.
2: Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice, yes.
0: So, Jeff. Thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast.